think that was <clears throat> I think that was baby Clive who's crying there. I, I get the I feel the same way when we start talking about taxes. This guy let out a good cry. Um <clears throat> so I'm I'm having I woke up yesterday with a really strong cold and my voice is doing some tricky things, so it'll be a little funnier than normal. Um but I welcome all the prayers and I'll try not to sound too much like cat scratch. Um, and trust that the Lord's word will be preached. Amen. Uh, good morning. Glad to see all of you here. I had a line in here to make fun of Pastor Woody for taking vacation today. But then I look at you and I, it seems like he took half the church with him. So <laughs> those of you blessed ones who are here, you will be blessed. Amen. Amen. And God loves them too. He just loves us more. That's bad theology, but we're okay. Um, wish you all had a good Christmas, two days after Christmas. Um, hopefully it was wonderful. Hopefully you got all the presents you wanted. Hopefully you even got a chance to spend time with the people you wanted and family too. But seriously, what a wonderful time of year to just stop. You know, one of the things I love about this time of year is that we get to stop and actually enjoy people. You know, I was at um, Barnes & Noble the other week and didn't do anything special. You know, there's a guy behind me I held the door and he goes, wow, you're in the holiday spirit. And I was just like, what a sad world we live in <laughs> that holding the door open is so extraordinary that I'm in the holiday spirit. Like, hopefully I hold the door open more than, than Christmas, but that's just me, right? But I love this time of year because we actually get a chance to stop and enjoy people. You know, this Christmas season, we have been talking a lot from the pulpit about how this time of the year signifies God's love invading our world. We talked about how Jesus coming to earth change how we see, how we hear, and how we feel things. We talk about how Christ's invasion changes our perspectives, it changes our focus, it changes us by teaching us what love truly is, and then it works to, to enlarge even our capacity to love. Because of Jesus and his invasion into our world, we can now again be who we were created to be and be who we were destined to be as Christ has made it possible for we, the lost children, to come home again. Christ invaded our world. This is why the shepherds and the kings all came by night to see the light of the world. This is why the angels praised God, saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests, on earth as it is in heaven. And speaking of heaven, Christ's invasion and coming into our world leaves us often fixating on what it means for earth. And that's okay. You know, it's, it's more than okay to think about yourself some of the time. I mean, if you think about yourself all the time, that could be a little problem, don't you think? Because if we ever always only are in the business of thinking about ourselves and, and what things mean for us, we often miss the boat, don't we? We often blind ourselves to ultimate or complete truth, don't we? And let's be honest, the more we think of ourselves, the more we ever always and only think of ourselves, the very less then we make the effort to think about others. And that's the thing. See, Christ's invasion did not just impact and change earth forever. No, no, my sisters and brothers. John, in his revelation at the end of the Bible, reminds us that Christ born of Mary, that invasion also brought revolution to heaven. See, Christ coming to earth, loose war in the heavens above. See, we may remember Herod, but John reminds us that old King Herod was only doing Satan's bidding. We may remember Mary, Joseph, in a manger, but John reminds us that we must do well to remember that their safety secured away from genocide that was happening in their homeland, that their safety as weary travelers and perhaps refugees 
that there's safety as a pregnant and single, and that's key, isn't it? You know, we, we know that she was a virgin Mary. We know that she was engaged, but we must remember that she's going, why? For the census. And why does the government give censuses? Not just because they want to know how many people. Why? To know how many people they can tax. So as Mary, she's engaged, but as she's going to Bethlehem to give the census, she's going to being taxed. And if you've ever filled out tax, she's a single mother. When you're not married on the taxes, you're what? You're single. So the Savior of the world is now being carried by a single mother. Perhaps that affects how we need to think of single mothers. But I digress. Let's get back to the point. So John reminds us that while we must do well to remember that unwed Mary, single mother Mary, and Joseph, and vulnerable and beautiful baby Jesus, they are being protected from their flight and their plight as migrant and as refugees. This is not just simply something that's happening on earth. No. What was happening in heaven was war was being waged by Michael and his righteous angels as God of God as they fought and defeated Satan, the dragon, and his minions. And I apologize for all the kids in the room and some of those. I just ruined that movie for some of you, but it's okay. Michael and the righteous angels of God fought and defeated Satan and his minions, and they hurled him from heaven, and Satan then wandered the earth, seeking to stop what God has set in place. Herod wasn't just trying to kill the baby Jesus. Satan was trying to stop what God had now set in motion, the coming of his son. Jesus, our Messiah, the one whose name and by whose gospel we can now be saved forever. Amen? This is why the loud voice cried out from heaven saying, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah for the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. Our Jesus, my Jesus, your Jesus has come, and he has come that our God and King might have the victory now and forevermore. Amen. See, this is why on Christmas I pray that you didn't just celebrate with the presents you received. No, I hope you gave God praise and worship through his name because the mere presence of Christ Jesus, the baby, the mere presence of Jesus into our world set forth revolution. That bred for us the ultimate present, the ultimate gift, God's salvation. Amen? And that's why on Christmas, I mean, we, are, we may be familiar. Oh, Somebody messed up my paper, Zach. <laughs> this, this is how you know you love Zach. You just blame everything on him, and usually you're right. It's messed up, Zach. I don't appreciate this. I was just getting into it. <clears throat> this is why on Christmas I pray that you didn't just enjoy time spent with family and friends. No, I hope you exalted and give thanks due to our God's name because Christ Jesus, baby Jesus' presence into our world, that invasion, that revolution also bred for us the ultimate fellowship, the ultimate gift that because of Jesus our Christ, you and me, and you and me, and you and me, and us and the world, and all who would believe, we now get to be family, and family of our God and King. Amen? Now, speaking of John, we are going to get back to the first epistle of John this morning. It's been a while. It's been three months to be exact. So for Chuck Musser and the two and a half of you who've been waiting for us to get back to first John, that's where we're going. Now, you might remember from last time that this epistle of 1 John is traditionally and historically credited to being a letter or a combined series of sermons from the Apostle John, a disciple of Jesus, 
the evangelist, the one who wrote Revelation, the one who told us about the last days, John the Apostle. But one of the things we stressed last time was that this same John was our Lord Jesus Christ's probable best friend during his time here on earth. In this letter, we got a great many lessons to look at. Great many things to learn and think on and study. Lessons like, yes, Jesus is Lord and Lord forever. He is our God through whom all things were created. He is our God who holds together all things. He is our God who reconciles all things. But our same Jesus is also the God who came, who lived, who loved, who died and was raised up. That the king of all radiance and light came to shine for the glory of his father in the world of this darkness so that we can come back home again. Amen? In 1 John, there are lessons about how true teachers and believers don't just proclaim Jesus with their lips. No, they prove Jesus by looking like Jesus in how we live and in how we love. There are lessons in here about conflict and struggle. Some of us need help with that, right? There are lessons in here about the tension we often feel in church about expressing some of our more charismatic gifts. There are lessons in here about faith and conduct. There are lessons about love. Love. What is love? What does love look like and who is love? What does it even mean that God is love? This is a book filled of lessons. Last time we shared that a foundational truth to understanding this book is knowing that John is not simply writing about Jesus God or Jesus Messiah or Jesus Savior. No, John is writing about his best friend. John writes because he knows Jesus. The same Jesus who spoke to thousands you know, if you're bold, maybe you could say Jesus in his lifetime spoke to tens of thousands, right? Now, of hundreds, those tens of thousands, maybe? we can perhaps chose to follow Jesus say. during his lifetime, maybe hundreds. Well, Scripture then thins it a little bit more because Scripture tells us what? Jesus sent out 72. So he spoke to thousands, maybe tens of thousands, maybe hundreds believed, but for sure we know that 72 went out. And of those 72, we know that he discipled what? 12, right? 12 people that he lived and walked with, that he taught day and, day and night exclusively. 12 disciples. Now, some of you get a little tricky with the number 12, right? <clears throat> some of you might even want to call it 11, right? That whole Judas betraying God thing, we don't know what to do with that. So is he really a disciple? He's a disciple. Besides, our God made crooked paths straight, amen? What Judas meant for good, God, what Judas meant for evil, God meant for good, amen? We have a God whose goodness, whose faithfulness, whose mercy, whose grace, whose love is not defined by what Judas did. It's not even defined by what we did. God's always good, amen? God's always faithful, amen? God always has grace, always has love, always has mercy. He's forever good, amen? But let's get back to John knowing his best friend. So Jesus spoke to thousands, maybe tens of thousands, hundreds maybe believe, 72 are sent out, 12 are disciples, but only three formed Jesus' inner sanctum, Peter, James, and John. The reason we say that is because there is the three that went up to the Mount of Transfiguration. There were the three that were stayed closest to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, not my will, but your will be done. Three. Peter, James, and John. If there was an inner circle, it was them. But even among these ultimate three, only one, only one is repeatedly called the disciple that Jesus loved. Now, some of you are probably a lot more holier than I am, but if I were back there, Jesus and I would have had some words. Think about this for a second. 
We were all together day and night. We were all learning and praying. We were all serving and working for the Father's kingdom come and his will be done. We were all supposed to be in this together, but John, only John, gets to be called the disciple Jesus loved. Jesus and I would have had some words about that. But then again, maybe the right reading of that title is not that Jesus loved John more than the others. Maybe it's not even that Jesus loved John more than all of us here today. No, the right reading of that title is that John is Jesus' best friend. This is why out of all the disciples, John is the one that Jesus chooses when he's hanging on Calvary's tree, when he's dying for the sins of the world. Out of all the people, Jesus chose John to be his mother's adopted son. Jesus chose John to be the one who will provide for her and care for her in her tender old age. Now, in our society, that might not seem like a big deal. In Jesus' time and place, as the oldest son, it was your job to care for your mother. You didn't have Medicare. And it's cool, in 20 years, you might not have Medicare too. You didn't have Medicare back then, right? You didn't have a society that, that had anything for aging. It was your job as the oldest son to care for your mother. And out of all the people Jesus could have put, This is what I love about Jesus. He's dying and suffering for the sins of the world, for your sin and my sin. Out of all that suffering, he stops and he looks on John and says, John, look at Mary. She's now your mom. Mary, look at John. She's now your son. That's how much Jesus loved John. He trusted him to take care of his aging mother. I don't know. Zach, I'll just keep blaming you trying to find my page. Now, that starts to unwrap, I think, the real treasure we have with John. See, in this letter, Jesus' best friend writes because he knows Jesus, and he's known by Jesus. He writes because Jesus is love. He writes because love has invaded his world. He writes because Jesus came to earth and changed everything for John. It changed how he sees, how he understands, how he feels, his perspective, his focus. It teaches him while even enlarging his capacity to love. Jesus invaded John's world so that John can now again be who God created him to be, be who God destined him to be. So yes, sisters and brothers, the treasure we have in the book of 1 John is that it tells us that the same special relationship that Jesus had with John, his best friend, well, that's the same special relationship that Jesus desires to have with you. That's the same special relationship where you are perfectly known by God and he perfectly knows you. That's what Jesus wants for every single one of us. When Jesus says, John is the disciple I love, it was because you have to make yourself known and you have to do the work of getting to know Jesus. Amen? Now, to have that kind of relationship, we have to let love that is Christ invade our worlds. We have to let love that is Christ invades our minds, invades our heart, our deepest, most innermost being. We have to let the love that is Christ invade our world. Amen? If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. We'll be reading John 1, 5 to 2, 2. Um, we'll be, the verses will be up here on the wall as well. In 1 John 1, 5, 2, 2, we read, this is the message we have heard, and this is the message we have heard from him and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also the sins of the whole world. You know, sometimes when we read scriptures, we read them, and then we need to go back and read it again and again and again, because this doesn't jump out to us, right? Sometimes we need help, and that's okay. It's okay because we always need help if we're honest. It's okay because the Holy Spirit desires to teach us, right, to illuminate our understanding. We have a spirit who wants to work to help you understand, See, this is why I think when we always go to Scripture, we got to go with this prayer. The prayer of the psalmist who once sung, Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your word. So sometimes the word of the Lord is not perfectly easy to understand after one quick read. But guess what? That's not the case here in 1 John. In fact, John begins by telling you exactly what he wants to communicate to the people of God. He says, I have a message. And what is this message? The message that John, a witness, a brother, a best friend, someone who lived with Jesus, walked with Jesus, touched Jesus, was touched by Jesus. His message is simply this. This is the message we have heard from Jesus and declared to you. God is light. In him, there is no darkness at all. The key to a better understanding of this entire passage of Scripture lies in properly understanding John's message. In fact, the entire passage is founded, it's premised, and it grows from this understanding that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness at all. God is light. In him, there's no darkness at all. Now, truth is, most of us in this room, we know God is light. I mean, we know God's good. We know God's faithful. We know God's merciful. We know God's graceful. We know God's forever love. We know God is light. And because God is light, there's no darkness in him. We can get behind that. But here's the thing. I'm not going to get up here and pretend to be a scientist. I can barely talk. But on a very base and a very fundamental level, we know this about light. Light is not the opposite of darkness. Darkness is simply the absence of light. And that's the concept we got to hold on to. Light, where there's true light, there can be no darkness. Where there is darkness, light is absent. The reason that's key is because we sometimes think of light and darkness as, you know, two equal and opposite forces, right? But get to the base level. When you walk into this room and it's dark and you flick on the light, darkness is not equal to the light. Light's always superior, amen? See, This is the place in the sermon that I wanted to insert a Star Wars joke about light and darkness, the force within, and all that jazz. Then I realized I've never wasted my time on those corny movies anyway. I'm only mostly just kidding. That was for Zach, too. But here's the thing, though. Darkness is not the opposite of light. So you have to stop thinking of darkness like that. Right? You may know it, but you have to stop thinking that they're equal. Right? Darkness is the absence of light. This is key because when we understand this, we will stop thinking of them as we equate the two. And when we equate the two, then it's like a war going on. 
But if we just think of the empty dark room and the light being flicked on, we'll see that light is superior and squashes and vanquishes the dark. Amen? Now, I may not know a thing about Star Wars, but I do know a little something about football. So to flesh out this light being superior and dark being inferior and dark being vanquished, I'm talking a little football analogy. See, if you want to know about light and darkness, <clears throat> all we have to do is look at light. My New York football giants. And I know it's been a rough season, you know. Thank you. I know it's been a rough season with the New York Giants, but it's an analogy, so you got to use your imagination. Now, the Giants are light. They're superior. If you want darkness, if you want darkness, we'll go to the Philadelphia Eagles, right? Bear with me. It's an analogy. Now, when we go to the, well, here's the big thing. I had a big point, but here's the point. That's what it boils down to. The Giants, well, we've actually won Super Bowls. That's why we're light. We're superior. The Eagles have never won a Super Bowl. That's why they're inferior. Light vanquishes darkness. I know a few of you are in here laughing. You're like, I'm a Steeler fan. <laughs> I'm a Steel. Here's the thing about the Steelers. They got six championships. We got eight. I'm just saying, we're superior. Light is superior to darkness, right? We win Super Bowls. The Eagles don't. Steelers got six, we got eight. We're light. All right, all right, bring it in. We'll work on the Cowboys for the next sermon. I got Washington too. I know, we got them. All right, so the big idea is that John wants us to hold on to simply this. I'm John, I'm a witness. I've seen and heard from Jesus himself. I know and live because our God is light. And God being light proves that he is superior to any darkness. They're not equal. God being light is superior. There can be no darkness if light is present. Light vanquishes darkness. And because our God is light, he's holy and completely righteous. Furthermore, those who belong to God, those who belong to God, even if they're Eagles fans, they live to please God. And what about those who do not believe in God? Well, those who don't belong to God, that's easy. They don't live to please God. Why? Because light and dark are not equals. They're not opposites. In fact, light and dark can't coexist. What I'm saying is you're either a child of light or a child of darkness. You're either living to please God or you're not. Light or dark, child of God the king or servant of the prince of the power of this world. Light or dark, your life is showing you who it is that you truly believe. Light or dark, you're bearing fruit for the kingdom of God or you're bearing fruit for the kingdom of Satan. Light or dark. This is why John begins his next section by simply saying, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and we do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Light or dark? John instructs us here that if we say that we are Christian, meaning that we are disciples of Jesus, the anointed one, we are followers of the Messiah, the king, the fruit of our lives then, though, if they don't actually do and they don't actually show that we belong to the kingdom, if we say we're a Christian but we're living and walking in darkness then we are liars. 
If we say, I believe in Jesus, but nothing in my life shows that I'm a child of the kingdom, we are children of light. We do not practice the truth. We, know, we don't even belong to Christ the King. If you can right now, and this is what I love about the end of the year, I do deep thinking twice a year for sure. One is April around my birthday, and the other is this week leading up to the new year. And I think a lot of us are like that, right? You laughed at me, but most of us are like that. At the end of the year, we do some deep thinking. It's like, where am I going? You know, what am I doing, right? But here's the thing I want you to do this week as you do your deep thinking. Is your Christian faith predicated on what you say or the fruit that comes from your life? When you look at your life, is what you're grinding for, is what you're working for, is what you're living for bearing fruit for God's kingdom? What you're working for, is it drawing other people into Jesus' kingdom or is it pushing them away from Jesus' kingdom? That's all I got for you this week. When you think about, when you do your deep thinking, when you do your New Year resolutions, we all fail by February anyway, right? Let's be real. There's like four of us in here who will actually accomplish our New Year resolution this year. God bless you. But for the rest of us who will fail anyway, this is the resolution I want you to hold on to. Do an inventory this week. When I look at my life, does it reflect God's kingdom come and me working for that kingdom? Or does it reflect my kingdom come and me working for me and mine's? Light or dark? You know, sometimes, most times, I think we, we, we get this whole, John saying, you know, don't walk in darkness, don't walk in darkness. This is different from stumbling. We're talking about walking in darkness, and there's a difference. Sometimes, you know, I love when people say, well, I'm not perfect. Or there's another one, nobody's perfect. And my favorite one of all time, only God can judge me. God bless you if you ever say that. Because most of us in this room, we only want God to judge us when what? Jesus is standing in the middle. You know, a lot of times we say God's not, or everyone's not perfect, or I'm not perfect, or only God can judge me. If we're real, we're just saying that to do what? To do what we want. We're just saying that to do what? To live and make the choices I want to make. But here's the thing. Your deeds will show who you follow, not what you say. Your life will bear fruit to who you belong to. And this morning, all of us in this room, we are either children of light or children of darkness. Jesus is the one we follow, amen? And if you're not living and looking like Jesus, then do you belong to him? Again, in 1 John 1, 7, John's not speaking of stumbling. He's not writing here about making a mistake or doing a wrong. Or John speaks here of walking in darkness. That is, we're not living in submission to God. That is, we're living in accordance to this world. To walk in darkness means to have my life firmly established on living for me and not for Christ. Walking in darkness means to make my kingdom come and not Christ's kingdom. Walking in darkness means I'm living in sin. And that's the key right there, right? It's saying that what God says is wrong doesn't matter as much as what I say is right. It's saying that my, my true God, and in fact, this God I'm here worshiping this morning, I like to keep him in a box because that way I can open him up whenever I need. Sisters and brothers, if we live in sin, if our lives are more characterized or even decided by what we want to do, by what I say, instead of submission to what God wants, instead of submission to what God desires to do in you and through you and for you, if we're lives are living in sin and it's not about what God wants, what God desires, then do we really belong to him? Because John will say no. 
If you're walking in sin right now, yes, even at this moment, the Spirit can convict you that you're walking in sin. But if you're walking and living in sin right now, Scripture boldly proclaims that you do not belong to God. If your life is determined and it shows more fruit of darkness than fruit of light, It doesn't matter what you say you believe, your fruit says otherwise. And John will tell you, I know Jesus, I walk with Jesus, I touch Jesus. And you know what we know about Jesus? Those who belong to him look like him. Those who belong to him make God's kingdom come. Those who belong to him are working to bring other people back home again. Amen? We cannot truly fellowship with God if we live in sin. And here's the thing. We can't even fellowship with one another if we live in sin. Because sometimes the sin destroys the fellowship and the bonds that we have. But sometimes the sin is so embarrassing, I don't want to let anyone close, anyone in, so they can see my darkness. But praise God. Praise be to God our Father. Glory be to Jesus our Savior. And thanks be given to the Spirit of God, because if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, If we live as Jesus lived, if we're bold enough to love as Jesus loved, if we live to make God's kingdom come, if we love on earth as it is in heaven, if we live in the light as Jesus Christ is our light, that is only then that we can have true fellowship with God. It's only then that we can have true fellowship with one another. Amen? Sisters and brothers, we must live to please God just as Jesus did. We must, this means that we must submit to the Spirit of God always and in all things. This means that we must start making time and creating spaces so that we can actually get to know God, with God right? So that we can be vulnerable with God. And I don't know about you. I don't want to put this on you because I know I do this all the time. I often think God sees everything. Why do I have to tell him? You know, like God sees it already. I'll just make a generalized prayer and all that. Here's the question you ask, and this is a question I ask myself when I, when I get in that funk and that, that mood. I just simply say, is this really how I want to be known by God? Is this really how to get to know God if I'm, if I'm just saying, you see it, so we don't got to talk about it? Think about any other relationship you have. If you adopt that model in any other relationship you have, what would that lead to? Probably discord. Probably lack of reconciliation. Probably lack of growth. Probably lack of vulnerability. It won't be a true relationship, would it? Sisters and brothers, we must live to please God. Live to please God just as Jesus did. Do so, and the fruit will show that you belong to God who is light. Do so, and you'll have true fellowship with one another, true fellowship with your sisters and brothers today and now and for eternity, because you will be, guess what, the body of Christ. If, you have, if you're walking the light, you get to be members of one another. You get to be together Christ's family. Amen? Now, this is very fascinating because in this passage, and for centuries now, you know, in John's day, they called them Gnostics, right? This whole passage is about, you know, people who feel like, you know, I got this God. He died on the cross for my sins. I'm good, right? I can't sin anymore. I'm perfect. Now, I know most of you in here are just like, I don't think that way. But here's the thing. All of us have a trace of this. And I think the longer we're Christians the more stronger this trace of it remains, right? Because here's the tricky part. It's a bumper sticker, so forgive me. I, as a Christian, I am not perfect. You know the rest, right? I'm being perfected, right? A lot of us have this mindset when it comes to dealing with sin in our lives, right? And I'm not talking about the first people who said, I'm not perfect, so I do whatever I want. A lot of us, if we're real, we go, well, God's not done working on me, so he's just working extra time. 
We don't make the effort to do what this passage calls us to. And what does it call us to? Confess our sins. When I was a teenager, I had a friend who was Catholic. And and there's a lot of things about the Catholic Church that I struggled with, you know. And one of them was this idea that, you know, it was prescriptive. No matter where you are, you know, you go to the priest, you confess the sins, and and he gives you the prescription, and you're good. And I struggled with that because I read in the Bible that God's my mediator, that God's my advocate. You know, but here's the thing I think I learned from my friend. As a Protestant, as an Anabaptist, as brethren in Christ, I don't value confession of sin nearly as much as he did, right? Because for me, it was just a generalized prayer, like, God, forgive me. I'm good. But God, forgive me of what? Right? We as Protestants, as Anabaptists, as brethren in Christ, we don't value confession of sin because I think most of us are in this mindset that Jesus died on Calvary, all my sins was taken care of, and if God's got to deal with this, let him deal with it. That's it. But John reminds us that the key to your healing, the key to defeating that addiction, the key to punching through, really, is confession of sins. If you're not willing to confess your sin, John says that makes you a liar. That makes you not belonging to Jesus. That makes you hiding in the corner, hiding in darkness. And remember what we said in the very beginning, light and dark do not mix. And if you want to be a child of light, you have to be willing to be vulnerable with God. You have to be willing to be vulnerable with each other. You have to be willing to put your sin out there, not because it's ugly, but because the light can take it away. Amen? You have to be willing to put your darkness out there, not because it's embarrassing, but in your vulnerability, that's where you start to grow. In your vulnerability, that's where you get accountability. In your vulnerability, that's where God's love, it means so much more. It means so much more when God has pulled me out of my addiction. It means so much more when God has freed me from the way I used to think. It means so much more when God is the one who has carried me through. If I just say, God, thank you, that's one thing. But when I say, God, thank you for this, that's another thing. You hear me on that? We have to be willing to confess our sins. Because here's the thing about darkness. It ensnares us. It encompasses us. It hides us from God. And then we start building layers upon layers upon layers so that it's so hard for God to get through. You know, in the old prisons um, in Philly, we had this one prison that we used to go for Halloween, you know. That's before I became Anabaptist. We used to go to this prison, and, and, and one of the things that was fascinating about this right? old prison. And the light was literally designed in the prison so that, you know, prison used to be rehabilitation, right? Now it's just where we store people. It used to be rehabilitation. Like the literal point of prison was so you can go and God can convict you and you can come out a better person. And there's some of us, well, I shouldn't say some of us. There are a lot of people I know who went to prison and God came to them and that happened. But for the majority of people, that's not what's happening. And part of the reason they had that light up high was so no matter how dark it was, you knew God's light was shining down on you. No matter how dark the day was, no matter how hot it was, you could look up and say, somebody still knows me. I think there's a lot of us in this room who have prisons of our souls that God wants to let us free of. I think there's a lot of us in this room who who don't know where to find light, who are looking and seeking and wanting to go deeper, but we just can't because we're still held back. And here's the thing, darkness ensnares you. And sisters and brothers, if we're not willing to be vulnerable with God, if we're not willing to be honest with one another, if we're not willing to say, God, I see my darkness, but I believe your light is greater. 
If we're not willing to say, I see my sin and addiction, but I believe your love can carry me through. If we're not willing to say, God, heal me, he won't heal you. And that's a tough word. Because here's the thing, God can only forgive those who ask for forgiveness. God can only heal those who are honest about their healing. You know, if I go to the doctor, I can't talk. If I go to the doctor and I say, my knee's working okay, what does the doctor say? Good for you. Now think about it spiritually. When we go to God in prayer and say, God, thank you for all my blessings, but I'm not vulnerable enough to tell him about the things I'm really struggling with. Is he going to heal me? If I go to God and say, thank you for all the great things, thank you for Christ coming. But I don't go to God and say, God, I know your son's coming, and I know you want me to have fellowship with my brother, but my brother hurt me. My brother hurt me and pulled me away from you, and I can't, I can't even look him in the face. We have to be willing to be vulnerable with God, amen? Here's the thing, though. If we say we're not sin, and this is what John continues, we say that we do not sin, we make him a liar. His word is not in us. If we say that we do not sin, we also deny that God is still working on and working in us. <laughs> we must ask God for forgiveness when we sin. We must confess our mistakes and own up to our stumbles. We must confess our sins because only then can the light of Christ come and vanquish the darkness. If you're struggling this morning, there's still a darkness deep within. We have to confess our sins. Amen? And the reason we confess our sins is because Christ has come. Christ has already won. The light of the world is here and is coming again. Light has won the day. The light that is Jesus Christ will win in the end. That's why no matter what darkness you think you have, God's light vanquishes it. That's why no matter what darkness you see in this world, Jesus says, go and be your light. Because even your little flicker of light can defeat the greatest darkness. Amen? You know, the Lord Jesus himself once said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John the Apostle is the one who recorded these words in chapter 8 of his gospel. Now, I can't help but think that Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. I can't help but think that this is what John was thinking of when he wrote 1 John, right? He's saying light and dark can't mix. Light and dark are not opposite. Light is superior. He's saying that if Jesus is the light of the world and Jesus is the light of your life and Jesus is the one you're following, your model, you can't have darkness. And this isn't, again, about stumbling. We will all stumble. None of us are perfect. But when you stumble, ask for confession or give confession and ask for forgiveness. But here's the thing. If your life is characterized more by this world and not God's kingdom, you don't belong to him. If your life is characterized more about doing what you want to do and what your hopes and dreams are and not what God has hopes and dreams for this world, you don't belong to him either. We have to be children of light. That is what we are called to be, amen? John knows Jesus is the light of the world. John knows that we are called and commanded to walk in the light as Christ is the light. But I think John knows something else too. I think John knows that the reason it's okay to let God know your darkness is because Jesus came not to condemn us, but to rescue us, amen? The reason it's not scary to let God know what's really going on is he's not here to condemn you. He's here to rescue and heal you. You know, I think we're familiar with this verse. I have a little niece who's about four, and she already knows it. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
But I think the rest of that passage has something to say to us this morning. Because the rest of that passage says, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. This morning, please hear and please always know, Christ wants you to be honest about your darkness because he's come not to condemn the darkness, but to pull you back into the light. God has come not to condemn what you've done and what your past says you are, but to give you a new destiny and a new future and to release you from that darkness. Amen? Christ comes not to condemn but to save us. Yet the light that Christ brings also opens up the darkness, not just in the world, but the darkness in all of us. And that's why John warns us. He says, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. How we choose to live and how we choose to serve, that's the fruit of who we belong to. And I'm thinking about that this morning is some of us, the reason we're not vulnerable with God, the reason we're not honest with God is because if we're honest with ourselves this morning, we love our darkness. We love falling away from God. Now, I know there's most of us in here who, who aren't in that camp, Right? But I think sometimes the reason we're played by the darkness within is because we have it under control or because no one sees it. But John says, light comes to vanquish darkness. And I'm saying you will not be free until you bring that darkness to light. Amen? And that's why I think he can end with where we'll end this morning. My dear children, I write to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also the sins of the world. As Christians, we are the new and growing family of God. We may not be absolutely perfect yet, but the fruit of our lives will show that we are children of light if we are choosing to walk in the light. Sisters and brothers, God bless you and God bless us. We don't walk this road alone, amen? God bless you and God bless us. The same power that resurrected Jesus from the dead is the same power available to us this morning. Amen. God bless you and God bless us because the spirit of God now dwells in your hearts. And God bless you and God bless us that Jesus Christ now stands before us as a mediator and an advocate. This is a little corny, but when I was 12 years old, I heard this and I was like, oh, that's good. I'm going to use that in a sermon one day. Seriously, it's what I thought about as a 12-year-old. Um, the story goes like this. Imagine yourself in a courtroom of life, right? That's me painting a picture. Imagine yourself in a courtroom of life. On one side, and some of you know this analogy, on one side you have Satan and his minions, right? And, but here's the other thing I want to add to the analogy is you also have your past, you also have your stumbling blocks. You also have every addiction that's holding you. You have your darkness. And every time you stumble, they all jump to the middle and they start screaming, look at what she's doing. Look at who he is. In the middle of the courtroom up high is God the judge. And he's hearing all these things. And he's hearing all these things. But praise God that our defense attorney is Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise God that every time we stumble, Jesus stands up. And the analogy usually went like this. Whenever they yell something out, Jesus just gets up and spreads his arms. He says, I died for that too. And for most of us contemplatives, that's good, right? Like, Jesus got you. But here's the thing. My Bible says Jesus is an advocate. And an advocate doesn't always sit quietly. 
So this morning, remember when you stumble, Jesus isn't just saying, God, please help them. Jesus is yelling right back at those demons. Jesus is writing right back at your past. Jesus is yelling at Satan. and He's saying this morning, that's my brother or that's my sister. That's your child. I died for them too. Jesus is standing up advocating for your behalf. So he doesn't just have to spread his arms. He'll open his mouth and say, you are my child. You are a child of light. You know, this is a very, not even heady, but this is a very big picture sermon, right? I wanted you to say light and darkness. Light is superior. Light squashes it. So let's be children of light. As we got to the end, I started thinking about what are three or four things that we can take home with us? And I was reminded by, you know, Philippians 2, 1 to 4, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And the reason it is is because <coughs> God bless Mrs. Bivens in ninth grade English. She taught me everything I needed to know. Acronym. The acronym that jumps out the first time I read that Paul in that letter basically says, this is how you can have joy. Jesus, others, yourself. And that's how the passage breaks down in Philippians 2, 1 to 4. So as I talk about what it means to be children of light and not darkness, I thought the same thing, joy. So the very first thing I need you to do this morning is put Jesus first. And here's the thing. If you want to be a child of light, you need to get to know Jesus. So find out what it takes for you to connect to Jesus. For some of us, it's singing a song even though we can't sing on key. For some of us, it's reading a book. For some of us, it's talking to people. Whatever it is that connects you to Jesus, make room for that. We never forget to eat. That's a Bible analogy, right? You never forget your physical food. I mean, I do sometimes, but that's just me. I'm weird. You never forget to eat. You can't forget to spiritually nourish your souls. Whatever it is that connects you to Jesus, you have to build that into your rhythm of your day, the rhythm of your life. And the other side of it is you have to be pouring Jesus into someone else. And that's the hard part because in our country, in our context of Christianity, it's all about me and what I'm doing with God. But you have to be willing to say, this is what I know about Jesus, and I'm going to tell you about it. You have to be willing to say, this is what I know about Jesus, and I want you to see that Jesus. So that's the first part. The second one is others. You know, in this church, we often say, find where God is moving, find where God is working, and go and join in. And I think that's good. And then in this church, we have about, I don't know, 40, maybe 50% of our people in life groups. I hope in 2016 we get it to up to 100. But here's what I want to encourage you this morning. Join a life group. Join a group of people who can be honest with your faith, who can challenge and push you. But I know some of you are like, I'm way too cool for a life group. Or my, my favorite, I don't have time for a life group. And we can talk about that away from the pulpit. But here's what I'm going to challenge you. There are already people in your life that you have natural rhythms with. There's already people in your life that you meet regularly with, that you eat meals with, that you hang out with. Take five minutes before the game and say, how are you really doing? Right? There's already people you have a natural life group with. Do spiritual life with them. Now, I know for me it's easy. My Giants are terrible right now. I'm a Sixers fan for some reason. We won game two last night. Um, I like soccer. Chelsea, we're terrible. So for me it's easy to cut the game off right now. But I think for all of us, find the people who are naturally in your life already and do spiritual life with them. What is God teaching you? What is God doing with you? And I think we can do that. And that last part is you. If you want to be children of life, don't just wait for the end of the year. Don't just wait for your birthday every single day. You know, every night before I go to bed, it's the simple price I pray. Well, it's, it's kind of a scary prayer, to be honest. God, 
did I get closer to you today or did I fall further back? I think that's what we need to start doing. You start doing that inventory. When I look at my life, is it bringing people into the kingdom or pushing them away? When I look into my life, am I bearing fruit for God's kingdom or just Hank's kingdom? When I'm looking at my life, is people being drawn to Jesus and not the things of the world? Put Jesus first. Find how you connect with Jesus and connect. And then teach other people how to connect to Jesus. Live for others, right? Find out what God is doing and join in. But also with the people that you already have a rhythm with, do something with them that brings them into the Christian life. And yourself every single day. Not just birthdays, not just end of the year. Every single day, ask yourself the simple question, did I draw closer to Jesus today or did I take a step backwards? Did I pull someone else closer to Jesus today or did I take a step backwards? I'd like to invite the musicians up and the intercessors. We're going to pray. <clears throat> We're going to sing our last song, Old Little Town of Bethlehem. Almost made it. I apologize. This has got to sound terrible for you guys. I'm sorry. But <laughs> thanks for forgiveness. Um, as the intercessors come up and as the musicians come up, we're going to sing Old Little Town of Bethlehem. And the reason I wanted to sing this song is because I have a friend who has a blog, and he's, he's brilliant. But one of the things he does in his blog is he talks about Bethlehem. And it's kind of a critique, but also an encouragement. And the critique is that we as Christians, especially this time of year, we have a very lofty view of Bethlehem. We're just like, oh, it's, it's almost like a movie. It's perfect. That's where Christ was born. We pretty up the manger. And he says, if you read the Bible story, there's genocide happening. There's people not even having room for you, even though you're a pregnant woman about to deliver. They got you with the animals. It's not pretty. And he says, even if you look at Bethlehem today, who shot he at a back, house oh, and he brought back a bomb that someone threw, I think, at a church. He said, that's what Bethlehem looks like today. But here's what he challenged me on, is that we may want to pretty up Bethlehem and we may want to pretty up our darkness, but here's the thing about our God. He doesn't care about the mess. He comes right in the middle of it, and he shines his light even more. And when I think of Bethlehem now, it's not the, the, the great songs that we sing. What I think about is how God comes in the middle of the deepest, darkest place of the world, the forgotten place of the world, and God comes down and says, my light has come and everything has changed. So as we sing this song, I want you to be reminded of the first and last verse, and I'm just going to read it real quick. O little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. Above the deep and dreamless sleep, the silent stars go by. Yet in thy dark streets shineth the everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. And in that last verse, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend on us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the, glad, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. As we sing together, may we be reminded and hold on to this truth. Our God is light. In him there's no darkness at all. Our God is light, the everlasting light born in that night in Bethlehem. Our God is light, and it vanquishes all darkness. The darkness in our world, the darkness in us. The darkness in our families, the darkness in our churches, the darkness in our neighborhoods. Our God is light. Bethlehem might be ugly, but God makes it beautiful. Our souls might be dark, but God makes it light. Amen.